we're going to cover um, another six talks today. And it's a privilege to introduce to you um, the elder statesman and dean of our, of our department, Elder Stoy Proctor. Elder, Elder Proctor has been in health ministries for more years than he would even like to tell me. But he spent 27 years. Yeah. I was born, I nearly said BS bef before Stoy. <laughs> anyway, Stoy is a, uh, a pastor, he's an MDiv, he's an MPH, and he's an expert on nutrition. But more than all of that, he is a wonderful friend, a mentor, and uh, an example of what he preaches. And so we're very grateful that Stoy is with us. He was in the department until, uh, well, as a full-time associate until um, General Conference in 2010, and he's now in an emeritus position as an associate in our department, for which we are very grateful. And we're very glad, Stoy, that you're with us today and that you're going to share with us um, some of your expertise and knowledge. And uh, Stoy and his late wife, Lilani, were... Uh, the prime movers and producers of the Breathe Free program. They wrote it, produced it, and uh, I don't know that if you know how many Breathe Free programs you've ever conducted in your life, but you've probably lost count. But I know that I've had the privilege of working with Story both in the U.S. and around the world, and it's been a wonderful privilege at all times. We're going to, before we start this morning, good morning, Good evening. <laughs> I had to talk to my wife. <laughs> I didn't ask any questions. I just welcomed you. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to ask uh, you to pray a blessing on the meeting this morning, if you would. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for the gift of life today. Amen. We're going to start off the day with the central nervous system, one of the... Um, most interesting components of our foundations of health and uh, not for the least reason that it's for it's the part of our bodies in which so many functions reside and which orchestrates and coordinates so much of our life you know we are amazed always when we see a computer and people ooh and ah as they look at a computer and say, oh, it can do this, it's got so much memory, it's got so much ability, so many programs and so on. But when you think about how much your body and your brain can do, it's pre-programmed, it's uh, got a memory, it's got uh, the ability to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, you know, to perceive those tastes, to perceive those sounds, to recall a memory to recall a song, to recall a melody, it's we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The nervous system is divided into two, two, in two broad categories. The central nervous system, which is the brain and the cranial nerves. Cranial nerves are those nerves which come directly out of the cranium and uh, go to, for example, the eye, the nose, the face, the ear, the balance, um, and also that uh, are involved in very much of the control 
of vital functions. The vagus nerve, for example, which is very important in controlling heartbeat, heart rate, and breathing. So when we talk about central, it's right here. Peripheral means it goes towards the outside. So these are the nerves that then will run from the spinal cord, part of the peripheral nervous system, and the spinal cord ends at this level here, and then the nerves are distributed all the way throughout the body. And interestingly, what is the most sensitive area in the body? Which would you think? It has the most sensation and the most feel. Which part of the face? The lips. The lips. Interesting. And then when you look at the distribution of nerves you, you, and nerve endings, you'll find that in the fingertips, because you've got very fine touch and perception in the fingertips, uh, you have very, very more nerve endings than you do on the back, for example. So you have a very strong ability to do what we call two-point, three-point discrimination. You can tell the difference between um, very clearly between very small distances of things that are touching your fingers as opposed to on your back. So that's broadly into two major portions, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. It's an exquisitely complex system of cells and it permits thought, emotions, consciousness, and coordination of physical action. We've talked about this when we talked about um, specialized nerve tissues, nerve tissue, muscle tissue, and so on. But the nerves are uh, just amazing how they function, how they take the messages, how they process things, how it works with the emotions and our thoughts and our consciousness and our being. The basic unit, as we talked about the other day, is the motor neuron. There's a cell body, and the cell body has a nucleus in it. And you remember the nucleus is the coordinator of the functions of the cell, where the DNA is and the chromosomes and so on. And the interesting thing about the nervous system, it's always been thought that nerve cells do not regenerate. But it has now been found and documented that there are stem cells and cells in the brain which can actually change and regenerate, although <clears throat> it doesn't happen as readily and as frequently as, as, for example, in the liver. The liver, the cells turn over um, on a regular basis. You're, you're remaking your entire liver over time, over months. Whereas the brain, once it's set, it's there. The heart muscle, the same thing. You don't get changes. Your body muscles, the same thing. They can enlarge. You know, you can see the more you exercise your muscles, what tends to happen to them? They become bigger. They don't become bigger because they have more cells in them. They become bigger because the muscle fibers enlarge. A stereotypical neuron has the cell body, a long extension called the axon. That's it there. And we talked, and then it has the dendrites, and at the end of the dendrites are these terminal buttons, and they um, then attach either to another nerve or to a muscle. What does myelin do? 
Do you remember what myelin does? Insulator. It's an insulator, and what happens to the uh, impulses because of the insulation? Okay, so when it's myelinated, what happens? Does it do the short or the dancing? Exactly. Which is the quicker one? Exactly right. So in other words, when you've got a myelinated nerve fiber, it'll have a faster conduction. The um, mechanism is much quicker because of the myelin sheath. The synapse. Synapse is a junction between, as we said, either another nerve or a muscle fiber and you can see how it terminates in the synaptic cleft. There's a cleft here which is a space and inside that uh, end plate is what we call uh, all the little packages of neurotransmitter vesicles. A vesicle is just a small package of the neurotransmitter chemical. The uh, impulse comes down the nerve this is the end of the myelin sheath. The impulse then causes the release of this chemical into what's called the synaptic cleft in the synaptic space. The message then comes through to the muscle. The muscle then stimulates, is stimulated and will then contract. Let's get you a nice comfortable seat. These um, chemicals are transmitted in bursts and um, then they are wiped out by other substances. In other words, as we said before, once that chemical substance is released, it does its job, it carries its message across, and then it is mopped up so that the muscle and the nerve are then ready to perform the next action. The action is usually pulsed, so it occurs in uh, spates and the neurons are usually conducting in a one-way pattern. Although you, uh, you sometimes get those which can do a two-way, but generally it's a one-way with one nerve con conducting from central to peripheral and then a responsive nerve then conducting from the outside to the inside. Now the interesting thing, and just to show you how a reflex works, it works amazingly quickly. A reflex bypasses your thinking. Have you ever placed your hand on a hot plate? Have you? Or on something hot? Or you've, you've miscalculated that something is very warm and you... Exactly. What do you do? Yeah. Do you think about it? You don't think about it. You put your hand on it and it's a... It's a you don't say, is this hot? Is it... Um, let me think about it. You know, Dr. Handyside's had the experience when he was working in the mission field where um, they had lepers that were part of their patient group. And um, a leper came in. And one of the problems with leprosy is it damages the nerves and they lose the nerve sensation. And the man was sleeping next to a fire. And he dreamed that he was about to eat cooked meat and woke up to find that the meat that was cooking was his own limb which had gotten into the fire and um, he just couldn't feel it. You and I, thankfully, are able the minute we touch something to 
withdraw because we feel it, we know it. The same reflexes occur when there's something coming towards your eye. Your eye closes without it's even coming through your brain. So reflex will go from the point of stimulus to the spinal cord, and it won't even head up to the... I mean, impulses will go up to the brain, but it'll come straight back through the other nerve, and the withdrawal will take place. So reflexes are amazing and wonderful things. And as I see these two worthy gentlemen sitting here with their legs crossed, I'm going to show you what a reflex looks like. <laughs> He's acting. <laughs> see? <laughs> Did you see that? I mean, it's... <laughs> I want to be still. <laughs> that's a reflex, and that's one of the things we. So is this different neuropathies? Absolutely, absolutely. As I mentioned to you the other day, this this patient friend of mine who developed a neuropathy when running on the treadmill, a neuropathy which may be partly related to sugar problems, but also seeing as sugars are now normal, we're not sure what else is aggravated it, a number of conditions, medications, toxins, d other disease processes can cause a neuropathy, and he has no feeling in his foot, and he broke his foot on the treadmill. So neuropathies, you know, um, once a pa an individual has a neuropathy, they often lose their reflexes. Other nervous system diseases, they lose reflexes. But one of the very classical ones is leprosy. And I, I often wonder, I don't think the leprosy we know today is the leprosy that was described in the Bible because, you know, uh, the leprosy that we know about today, you've got to be with the patient, with the individual who's got it, you've got to live with them, and it takes years. It's a very slow-growing bacteria. And, uh, but anyway, it's not for me to make that call, but it's interesting that the actual disease affects very specifically the nerves, and that's partly why they have the problems they have. Now, I want to ask you, what kind of disease processes do you know? What processes? Infectious? Traumatic? Autoimmune? Viral, that's infectious, yeah. What is traumatic is mentioned? Neoplastic? What else? Metabolic? Diabetes is one. We mentioned autoimmune, that's correct. So there are a number of types of infection, of disease processes. And the nervous system is vulnerable to these, in, these same disease processes, infection, degeneration, neoplasia, injuries, just like all the other tissues. So briefly what you need to remember, you need to remember that the central nervous system is composed of two major portions, the central, the peripheral. The central houses all our emotions, our actions, our thoughts, and our memories, and also controlling of the body. The peripheral is related to movement, sensation, and uh, these tissues are vulnerable to the diseases like all other organ systems to the same processes. The brain requires energy, glucose, and oxygen. Now somebody asked the question or made the comment yesterday that somebody made the comment that sugar is dangerous for the brain. Well, let me tell you, if you don't have sugar, your brain is not going to function. In fact, people who have diabetes face a very significant problem. And when they are treated, 
not only do they have to be very careful with their diet, but they have to be careful. What's going on with this thing? They have to be very careful with the that they eat regularly, because otherwise they develop a problem called hypoglycemia. Now, one of the ways that hypoglycemia manifests, it manifests with central nervous system symptoms. They become dizzy, they become forgetful, they become disoriented. In other words, they don't know where they are, and ultimately they'll go into what's called a hypoglycemic coma when the blood sugar drops. And that's because the brain is extremely sensitive to, good morning, uh, is extremely sensitive to the need for sugar. And if there's not enough in the bloodstream, it doesn't have enough to metabolize. And it's amazing to watch this. I'll never forget, I had this experience when I was serving in the military. And way up in the, in the boonies, uh, near a, a mission hospital, uh, it was a mission hospital of the Finnish, um, of a Finnish church group. And um, they brought in this patient, and he was lying on the stretcher, and he, he didn't look well at all. He was comatose, and he was uh, unable to move, unable to communicate, and the family were crying. And, you know, I looked at him. I had no ability to do tests even. And um, what we did straight away, I said, bring me 50% of dextrose water, which is glucose, and put in an, an intravenous line and gave in the injection. And because the principle that I'd learned was that when you have a patient in a coma, you've examined them, the one thing that you can't go wrong is if you give them sugar. And it was an amazing thing that happened. As we injected the sugar, he was lying there stiff, and suddenly his eyes started to open. He started to look around. I mean, by this time, this was out under the trees, and the people were looking, and he started to move. Then he started to, sh and he sat up, and he started to talk. The next day, there were about 200 people waiting to see me at the clinic. <laughs> There was a simple injection. What he was, he was a big drinker. And he'd had a big booze up the night before, had gone hypoglycemic. They brought him in thinking that he was close to death, and the doctor had resurrected him. But it was purely because his brain needed some sugar. I regretted that case for the next three months because it was a very busy clinic. But we had a wonderful time. Yes, yes. You've been, you've, been looking at the, you've been looking at the news. Did you want to draw something, Alan? Well, basically, glucose, uh, sugar is made up of chains of glucose. And um, when we talk about sugar, is you, if you watch the news this morning, did you watch ABC this morning? Well, as I try to get dressed, you know, I struggle with one eye and I'm busy looking at the news. I'm, yeah, I'm multitasking, brushing my teeth, getting my computer together, looking at the news with one eye. They talked about the average American takes an additional 22. Now, my colleague questioned me at the table and said, in addition to what? <laughs> you were right. 22 extra spoons of sugar. 
They were showing refined white sugar. And there's a debate because some doctor has said sugar is as dangerous as alcohol. And you know, I think that that comment is quite correct because when you look at the amount of sugar we take in, uh, it's a huge amount. And then he talked about the kind of sugars we take. A glass of orange juice, uh, I think, had six teaspoons of sugar in it, interestingly. But they didn't discriminate between the two, you see, because I think some, some are concentrates. I, exactly. The point was not made 22 extra, 22 in total, but 22 teaspoons of sugar is a significant amount of calories. How many calories would that be, Stoy? Yeah. But anyway, they were talking about the... That you... Well, you see, I, the, the point that we were discussing at breakfast, and they didn't make this clear on the TV, was, um, was this over and above what you have in an apple, in a pear, in your rice, in your potatoes, in your bread, and so on. In other words, is this added, in a, and what they did, though, mention was the added sugar, which you find in cereals and in uh, drinks and in... And they particularly mentioned the problem of sodas. Sodas are very, very heavy in sugar. To come back to your question, glucose, um, when you put it in chains, sucrose, which is white sugar, is just chains of glucose. And um, fructose is, um, fruit sugar is fructose, which is opposed to sucrose. But you get chains of this sugar, which comes into the body through the food we eat. Now, the refined sugar gets very rapidly absorbed. It has a high glycemic index. You take it in. If this was a concentrate filled with sugar, you take it in, and your sugar rises dramatically. You eat a um, whole wheat uh, piece of bread. It has a lower glycemic index. A yam has a lower glycemic index than a potato. But you take in this complex carbohydrate as opposed to the refined carbohydrate, you're then going to find that the blood sugar rises more steadily. There's a much more constant supply. So when we talk about sugar and we're doing it in a, in a lay kind of term, um, we're talking about glucose. So the blood, the brain needs glucose. Needs glucose. Does that clarify the issue for you? That's right. Gluc uh, sugar is, is the combination of, of, of sucrose, which is um, of glucose, and fructose. But the, the one that is used as an energy, well, fructose can also be used as energy, but the main source of energy is glucose. And um, white sugar is a combination of glucose and fructose. But the point that we're trying to make is that, and this is where the problem comes in, People say, well, because sugar, because honey is made by bees and it's natural, you can take as much as you like. It still breaks down into the basic components of glucose and fructose. So we fool ourselves by saying we're not taking any sugar. I told my good friend who loves honey for his voice that it's, um, it's, it's sugar. It's a much nicer form of sugar, 
but it's sugar nevertheless. Okay, so it's clear that we need to understand that. And when we talk about portions of fruit, for example, when you're looking at a diabetic individual, um, when we talk about portions, it doesn't mean that they can have ad-lib fruit because it's not white sugar. It means they have to stick to the portion size just like you and I have to because if we don't stick to portion sizes, our portion size goes up. And it's because of the basic components of glucose and fructose which are in those foodstuffs. The body absorbs it, breaks it down into its basic components, and then feeds it to the brain for its use. Are we clear on that? So the brain requires energy, glucose, and oxygen. And we talked about how long can the brain survive without damage? Four minutes. So it needs that good blood flow, a, a good normal blood pressure to supply the, the arteries of the brain to keep it going well. And any cessation of blood flow to the brain for 10 seconds will result in unconsciousness. So if you completely cut off the blood supply, that was the number we were looking for yesterday, 10 seconds, and unconsciousness will ensue. The Creator has put a marvelous system in place. You can imagine now the blood flows all over the body and flows through the arteries and then feeds the different organs. In the arteries surrounding the brain, there's a, between the blood and the brain is a tiny wall of capillaries. And this forms what is called the blood-brain barrier. And it is far more difficult for certain substances to get across the blood-brain barrier. And uh, for example, there are certain antifungal agents, there are certain substances which just don't get into the brain very readily, which is a problem when you're treating a patient who has a fungal meningitis. They've got an infection with a fungus in the brain, and you're trying to treat them because you can only give it into the, into the vein intravenously. It gets there, and the blood-brain barrier doesn't allow it through. Sometimes you have to give it what we call intrathecally. In other words, you go in through the lumbar puncture type approach, uh, and you put in a, um, uh, you put in a catheter, a little catheter, into the spinal uh, cord space, and you inject the medication into there to get it so that it gets to the brain. But the blood-brain barrier keeps certain substances out. Sadly, it doesn't keep alcohol out. It would have been a tremendously wonderful protective mechanism if alcohol didn't get there. Nobody would drink the stuff if it didn't get through to the brain. It regulates the passages of substances in the brain and is this wonderful barrier. We talked about the Schwann cells. The Schwann cells produce what? Myelin. They are the cells that insulate the nerves and permit organized electri uh, electrical activity in the brain. The brain has three main parts. The cerebrum, the cerebellum, and then the brain stem. The cerebrum, cerebellum, and the brain stem. Now interestingly, when Kathleen was showing the pictures of the car study uh, and the people who have dogs have less uh, percentage of death. I always think of this when I look at the picture of the brain. What is the difference between you and your pet dog or cat? This portion of the brain here is the major difference. 
the frontal lobe, the portion that allows you to think, to reason, to, to do those very wonderful uh, things that we're able to do with our brains. The cerebrum, as you can see, the brain is divided into what we call two hemispheres, a right-sided hemisphere, a left hemisphere. The corpus callosum is the portion which connects the two hemispheres of the brain in the midline. And that's why sometimes people can lose an, a significant portion of one side of the brain and with very careful training and teaching and instruction and years of, of therapy can get back function on the other side. People, how many of you are left-handed here? Left-handed. Who, who's left-handed? Sinistra, right? Only one. There's only one person here in their right mind. Because people who write with their left hand, their dominant hemisphere is the right-hand side. People who write with their right hand, the dominant sphere is the left-hand side. So there's a crossover which takes place mainly through the corpus callosum, but there's a crossover of dominance. And you know, the one thing that people used to do when... Uh, story, is this yours? It's in danger the longer it sits in front of me. <laughs> Thanks. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Um, when children begin to write with their left hand, what do people tended to do in the old days? Force them to do the other way. Don't do it. It's not a problem. And um, th they say that it's a sign of increased intelligence even. And I have a daughter who's left-handed, and she got her intelligence from her mother. So that's the truth. So it shows a very strong genetic predilection to this. And interesting, though, that you can change it. And that's the point that I was trying to bring out, how the brain has what we call plasticity. Plasticity. You know what plasticity is? You know what Play-Doh is? Kids can take it, and sometimes adults too, and you can change its shape. And you can make it look like different things. Now, the brain function uh, can be, or the brain, it, through its functions, can be plastic. In other words, you lose a portion of a function in one area, the, another area of the brain can be trained to pick up the slack. And uh, what you've just said to us is a very good example of how that works. You can be trained. Now, I have two daughters. One is a music therapist, and the other is an occupational therapist. And they spend their entire days trying to help people refocus their behaviors, learn to do things through modifying their brain function, their behaviors. So we can be trained. Interestingly, when you look at a brain, the surface of the brain is, is what we call convoluted. Do you see all these little folds? Convoluted means it is folded. Why do you think that the surface of the brain is folded the way it is? You've been reading the, you've been reading the books. It's folded in so that you get much more surface area fitting into the same volume of the skull. Isn't that amazing? 
how wonderfully and carefully that has been made. So the good Lord, when he designed the brain, designed it so that if he put in additional folds, he could put in additional tissue. The same thing happens, by the way, in the lungs. In the lungs, as you probably heard yesterday, there is a tremendous surface here. If you were to stretch out uh, a lung, one, the contents of one lung, it would fit into a tennis court, just one. The surface area for the exchange of gases across the lung membranes would fit onto a tennis court, which is amazing how wonderfully and fearfully we are made. Surface is convoluted, so it gives extra space, uh, extra area for the brain's function to, to be uh, able to be executed. Uh, it's further divided into an outer layer called the cortex. Uh, you, whenever you hear outer layers in the body, it'll talk about cortex. And the, beneath this layer is the white matter. The cortex is the gray matter. Gray matter is where the majority of the cell bodies are. That's where the thinking process takes place, the rationalization, the reasoning takes place. And it's become, uh, in, in English anyway, we use a colloquialism of use your gray matter, your thinking process. It's right there in that portion. The white matter is, the, is where the connecting portions of the nerve cells are. For example, in a disease like multiple sclerosis. Have you heard of multiple sclerosis? You may know somebody who's got it. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly common disease. Multiple sclerosis is a disease which affects the white matter mainly. And it affects the way that the, um, the nerve conduction takes place and there are, there's scarring, progressive scarring on the white matter. It would be like having a huge wiring board of wires and you progressively go and cut randomly wires bit by bit and ultimately the connection because there are so many connections we can carry on for a number of years but you come to the point where these people become very very limited in every way and often bed bound and that's part of the way that they die voluntary actions are initiated by the cere cerebral cortex you think about it i'm going to get up this morning and uh, i am not going to go to work that was what i thought this morning that was the voluntary. I didn't really. This is just a little play act. And then I thought to myself, Dr. Handyside knows where I live. So my voluntary action then was, well, I better get up and go and walk. Voluntary actions are initiated by the thoughts and processes in your cerebral cortex. You decide to do it. You initiate an action. You do it. The frontal lobes control our learned motor skills. For example, writing, technical skills, the things we can do. Um, <clears throat> you watch, I, I watch my wife who never sits with idle hands. We'll be driving along in the car and she's got a crochet needle and she's crocheting away. All of those are skills which are modified and learned uh, in the frontal lobes. The parietal lobes control the movement of the body and most of the sensory information. Um, when people have a dysfunction of the parietal lobe, uh, which is the side lobe of the, of the brain, they will, not, they will sometimes not recognize half of their body as belonging to them. Now that may be strange to you, but when you got up this morning and when, as you're sitting there, you're aware that this part of you is you and this part of you is you. 
individuals who have a parietal dysfunction, they ignore half of their body. And it shows in also the way they will draw a picture. They will just ignore half of the picture because that portion of the body is involved with uh, sensory information. Uh, the cortex also is involved with mathematical language skills, spatial sense, and directional abilities. And so with the directional abilities, my portion of, this, of the brain cortex is very dysfunctional because I don't know always where I'm going. But I hope that the rest makes up for it. The occipital reason, this is the occiput right here at the back. That's the occiput. This is a CT scan uh, showing you the brain with all its convolutions, the corpus callosum, the um, uh, cerebellum. And um, in the occipital region here is where the visual cortex is focused. So in other words, the eyes pick up the images. They are processed through a miraculous process of chemical reactions in the retina, helping you to perceive color. And uh, we're also able, because of the lens, able to perceive depth and um, proportion. It's then transmitted through the optic nerves from the eyes, goes back, to the occipital cortex. So an individual can have an absolutely normal pair of eyes, good lenses, but if they've had a stroke which affects the occipital area, they cannot see. So this is very important for our being able to have visual perception. Emotions and memory occur in the temporal lobes, which are clearly shown here. That's the temporal lobe. The temporal lobe is on the side here. And that's where our emotions and memory occurs. I don't know how many of you watched the interesting um, celebration of uh, Muhammad Ali's birthday recently. Did you watch that? It was, a, it was in uh, Time magazine. It's been in a number of newspapers. It was on the television. And Muhammad Ali has been one of, they say, the greatest sportsmen of all time. And... Um, during his boxing career, he sustained a number of head blows. And that resulted to a great extent in the fact that he developed a problem related to his basal ganglia. The basal ganglia are right uh, here at the, at the base of the brain. And they, um, they are related, they are a nerve system which is related to the fine coordination to the fine movement coordination. And when that's disturbed, people develop a disease called Parkinson's. It's because they lose the ability to produce a chemical called dopamine. Now, because of the blood-brain barrier, it's very difficult to, develop, to deliver dopamine to the brain because the blood-brain barrier doesn't allow it in when you put it in a chemical form, in a tablet form. People who have Parkinson's, they have a small shuffling gait. They walk slowly, and sometimes they just freeze up and can't move any further. They have a very deadpan face. They tend to dribble. They, they have a, an expressionless face, in fact. There it is. You watch, watch Dr. Handysides. He's doing it for you. Um, 
and then often if you look at them carefully, there'll be a dribbling coming out of the side here. <laughs> He's so uncooperative. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing, their handwriting will become smaller and smaller. They call it spidery handwriting. But it's not only in Parkinson's that this can happen. There are other movement disorders that take place. Certain medications can do it. Another situation which can uh, cause basal ganglia dysfunction, and these, the basal ganglia, are extremely, extremely sensitive to oxygen deprivation. And individuals who have carbon monoxide poisoning, they often can recover their entire brain function, but the one portion which often does not recover is the basal ganglia. So is that the same for the person that you It's bruised. It's a bruising. If you look at the brain, um, when I say if one looks at the brain, there are people who've been concussed and they've been a and sometimes died under the from from another cause or related injury to the concussion. You look at it and it's it's full of what we call petechiae, which is which is small hemorrhages all over the brain. So it's a bruising of the brain. It's really when it gets shaken up. The other interesting thing about the brain, the brain is bathed in a solution called cerebral spinal fluid. It also is surrounded by uh, three different types of membranes. All of those are the, the most outer membrane is called the dura mater. It's a thick layer. Now, if you want to know how the brain really uh, functions well, if you have a little bottle of water and you take a a little wad of cotton wool, and you put that in the water. S close the top of the bottle, and then shake it. What happens is the water moves, but with it you'll see the cotton wool tends to move, and it floats in this suspension. And the brain, it's tethered, it's held down, but it does have the ability to do a little bit of movement within the cranium. When the, ex the blow is excessive or the energy is excessive, then the brain sometimes can tear, the membranes can tear, it can bruise, it can contuse, and concussion ensues. And depending on the severity, it can be extreme or mild. Most people recover from concussion with very little consequences, but it can be a very severe issue. Well, you see, that's the problem with people like Muhammad Ali and the boxers. And, and, and this was a, it became noted when they were studying, and they would see that so many of these boxers would develop Parkinson's, and they realized from the recurrent uh, injuries. The cerebellum lies below the posterior part. We, you, I showed you a little picture of that earlier. And it's at this portion, it's in what we call the posterior fossa of the brain, of, of the uh, skull. It's the portion which is related to uh, movement and balance. It smooths out the actions. Now, I want you to put your pens down for a moment and get ready to do some tests. I want you to take your fingers. Those of you who've got a complete finger, take your complete finger. Yeah, you see, I, 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 I have a really tough time with this fella. Did you see that?
Take the finger, put it on your nose. Close your eyes, put it on your nose. I'm watching you. Do it again. Okay. Do it with the other hand. Okay. It's amazing, isn't it? Not one of you struggled to touch your noses with your eyes closed. Huh? <laughs> you know, that's one of the things we used to do. I used to work in a, as, as, a, as a, what was called a district surgeon. And we would get called out for the drunken drivers, those who were drinking under the, uh, driving under the influence. And uh, we would do the various tests. <laughs> Look at that. Now, reverse the direction. Good on you. You see, that's what your cerebellum's doing all the time. We would get the drunken driver and we'd ask him to put his finger on, his, on, your, on, your, on your finger and then on, your nose, on his nose. And he would be putting it in his eye and battling to find the place. The cerebellum smooths out the functions. Not only would they do that, they would do all kinds of other things. I'll tell you another day. It's got connections with your inner ear. And uh, it's very important that it enhances our abilities to learn complex movements, such as being a pianist or playing the guitar, some musical instrument, the flute, whatever it may be. The cerebellum is very important because of all the connections it has with the rest of the nervous system in helping us to smooth out movements. And people who have cerebellar disability would, if you say, touch my finger and touch your nose, they would struggle to get there. They have what's called an intention tremor. So they, as they get to it, they struggle more and more and then eventually get there. The other thing they get is what's called past pointing. You'll say, touch the remote. They go right past it when there's a cerebellar abnormality. The other thing they get is staccato speech. They cannot speak clearly and smoothly, and it will be like a staccato kind of speech. Yes, I am. <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. There are all these signs and symptoms which come out when people have abnormalities of the cerebellum, which helps us to understand what the function of the cerebellum is. Smooths out those functions, smooths out those actions, speech, fine movements. The spinal cord, as we talked about, is that central or peripheral nervous system? Central or peripheral? Peripheral. It's peripheral. What we've been talking about in the head is the central. This is now peripheral. Like the brain. It's got both gray and white matter. And they are wrapped in membranes. We talked a little bit about these called the meninges. The membranes around the brain and the spinal cord are meninges uh, called mater. The one intimately covering the spinal cord is called the pia mater. Looser covering over that is the arachnoid. It's called arachnoid because it's like a spider web. Arachnus is a spider. So you have the very fine pia mater, which is very closely attached to the nerve. Then you have what looks like a spider web surrounding that called the arachnoid. 
And then on top of that, you have the very um, much thicker, firmer lining called the dura mater. Dura means thick and tough. Then you've got the peripheral nerves which come out. These are the connections like uh, coming out of a, an, uh, an outlet on the floor. Then you have all these wires coming out from the central point of energy. And that's what the nerves are like. And the peripheral nervous system is divided into two parts, the somatic and the autonomic. The autonomic system is divided into some, two subgroups, and that's called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic divisions. They tend to work in two different opposite type of effects. The sympathetic tends to be stimulating, and the parasympathetic tends to be inhibitory. For example, if the fire alarm were to go off now, I, 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 think that, I think that some of us would run straight for the door. Others of us would garner up our computers and say, well, let me give whatever I can get. But there would be that sympathetic nervous system which says, come on, heart rate goes up, muscle contractions become stronger, Glucose is poured into the system. Cortisone is poured into the system. Adrenaline is driving the whole process. And that's sympathetic side effects. Stoy at the moment is very parasympathetic. He's not excited. He's quite relaxed. <laughs> he says, that's exactly it. He's exactly what the parasympathetic is. Laid back, relaxed. And as you sleep at night, the parasympathetic nervous system is the one which really comes to the fore. And it takes care of your breathing. Your breathing rate slows down. Your heart rate slows down. The functions, you become vegetative. Not vegetarian. Vegetative. Vegetativo. So you're vegetative, which means it's a nice, slow... Uh, ongoing um, functioning of the body. And if you monitor the blood pressure during the sleeping state and the pulse rate, everything slows down. Your uh, metabolic rate slows down. Your temperature is kept normal. But everything just relaxes. And the parasympathetic nervous system is taking care of everything. We talked about the cranial nerves. There are 12 of them. Um, and they are in pairs. And if you look at the skull, you'll find how they've been, the skull has been miraculously made so that those, many of those cranial nerves are very specially protected by the bone as they travel from the, from the brain to the various areas they need to go. These nerves supply the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and tongue and are different from the 31 pairs of spinal nerves through which the brain communicates to the rest of the body. They carry a specialized function such as the vision, the hearing, the taste, and the smell. All wonderful functions. Sometimes we're not very happy when we can smell bad smells. But your sense of smell can save your life. Particularly when you come into areas where there are what you call noxious gases. And I'm not talking about yesterday afternoon's lecture with all those noxious gases. What, not what he did. What he, what he didn't do, what he talked about. But um, when you come into an area where there's some noxious gases, that can actually 
your eyes tear up and you realize, I need to get out of here, because that can be a protective. Not only is it protective, but it's also very important. If you cannot smell, you can't taste appropriately. You can still discern bitter, sweet, and sour, but the fine nuances of the symphony of flavors cannot be savored when you don't have adequate smell. So we've been... You know, we could become quite poetic. <laughs> yes. Yes. But you can be sure, like some very erudite, learned, respected friends of mine who wear socks around their neck, I'm going to put a piece of bread under my tongue next time I chop up an onion. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there are so many issues involved. But the one thing is a diversion as well. I'm not sure what it is. Here comes something which hopefully you'll all experience. Well, unless Jesus comes before then, is aging. It's associated with a change in neurological functioning. And it's interesting how certain people cope much better with that than others. I mean, you walk and talk with people and you meet people and they tell you their age. And, uh, you know, I had the privilege of making contact again with someone I hadn't seen for a number of years who's now 92, sharp as ever, sharp as ever, speaks so well, sharp as ever, speaks well, is, is so, um, but he's, he's got some other problems, he's got some Parkinson's which has developed, but his mind is sharp, learning ability declines with age fairly early, I don't know that I like that one too well. Verbal skills persist into older age like the 70s. I think they go even further than that. Processing of information persists into the 80s in most. Reaction times begin to slow after the 30s. And that's why the boxers struggle, except the uh, George Foremans who make the comeback. But everybody's do, and they, they make their, their comeback because they are pretty determined. The blood flow to the brain and all of the changes, many of the changes are very directly related to blood flow, which decreases as, as do all our organ functions and abilities as we get age older progressively. There are some issues which are quite and very important for a church to be significant in its community as a center for community health and healing. Here in the United States, Alzheimer's is becoming more and more common. I think our churches can really do well to be centers of activity, places where things are offered for older people to enjoy. The other thing I think is very important is not only for our older people is it important to keep them busy, but for our young people to incorporate older people as their mentors and teachers. One of the very important things we all need in life every day, we need something to get up for. And I hear people say, oh, I got, when I hear Kathleen, the only thing that irritated me this morning in the worship, 
Somebody said, Kathleen's saying, I can't wait to retire. Because everybody needs something to get up for in the morning and to do and to work. And whether it be that we are involved in uh, community activities, mentoring, teaching, we have young people who would love to be helped by those who have. And as you pastor and as you teach, get the older folk who have skills, who have been able to do woodwork, who are able to cook, who know how to cut up onions, and get them to teach the young people the things that they need to know. Also, areas of exercise. What has been shown is that mental activity and capacity and ability are maintained better when people exercise regularly. How many of you have exercised today? I'm not talking about jumping to conclusions. Good, what a wonderful example. There are more than half of you have, have exercised today. Daily exercise is associated with a much better functioning of the brain, retention of cognitive abilities, and ability to, um, and also staving off the relentless degeneration which takes place in our brains. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.